Hello and welcome to Podcast of Ideas. I'm Alistair Donald, co-convener of Battle of Ideas Festival and coordinator of the international satellite events that we run as part of the festival. This podcast is the first in a series that will explore international perspectives on the coronavirus pandemic. It's difficult enough to keep up with events in our own countries, so here we'll bring together some Battle of Ideas partners and speakers and friends of the Academy of Ideas to give glimpses into what's happening internationally. We'll be hearing from people based in Europe and beyond. We start in this episode with some colleagues from France, Italy, Greece and also here in the UK. I'll be speaking to Anne-Elizabeth Moutet, columnist for The Telegraph, who joins us from Paris, Sean O'Halloran, freelance journalist who joins us from Fabriano in eastern Italy, Lamprini Toma, also a journalist and a writer and podcaster for The Press Project, who's based in Thessaloniki, and Fraser Myers, based here in London, who is staff writer at online magazine Spiked. We'll be exploring responses to the crisis in their respective countries. I thought the, the, the first thing to do would be just be quite useful to go around everyone and just get a quick sense of, of um, what's going on in your particular city or, or, or country just now, because uh, as I said, it's, it's quite difficult to keep up uh, with, with, with everything that's been going on. So can I, can, can I just ask everybody to, to give us a quick sense of what's been happening? Where are you in the world and what's happening outside your front door? Anne Elizabeth, should we kick off with you? Uh, yes, I'm in Paris. Um, uh, last week, the government passed a, uh, a special law which is derived from the state of emergency that we've already had with terrorist events. Uh, and it means that uh, they can regulate who can go out of their house, they can regulate who can travel. Uh, they have heavy fines in order for people not to, um, uh, not to uh, go against that. They've actually used those fines, uh, 44,000 of uh, 135 euro fines have already uh, been given to people who violated the uh, 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 the conditions of the lockdown. And the lockdown is that you're allowed to um, uh, leave your home for an hour a day. You have to carry with you uh, a special form, which I had, but I've actually used it, um, uh, which you fill for that day, giving the time when you go out, the date, your name, why you're going out, and there are a few things, uh, emergency medical treatment, not regular medical treatment, uh, walking an animal, usually a dog, uh, although there have been creative uh, moves, um, uh, essential shopping, and essential work as defined by a government a decree that explains what is necessary to the nation, of course, healing professions, but also people who work in logistics, people who work in sh uh, food shops, people who move the stuff around, etc. Uh, and uh, this is for two months. Uh, we expect the lockdown to end uh, possibly in stages, depending on area in France and depending on profession, uh, towards the end of April. Sean, you're, you're kind of in the eye of the storm. Sure. Well, Fabriano is in the La Marca region, so it's about two hours north of Rome, central Italy, fairly close to the uh, Adriatic coast. And it's a, it's a rural town that I live in, so I'm surrounded by mountains. And, and the population of this town is about 30,000 30, people. Um, it, it's funny j just listening there because, in a sense, we're a couple of steps ahead, aren't we, of the, on the rest of Europe and have been for quite some time. Speaking of time, it, it tends to warp because tomorrow was due to be the day 
that the government lockdown, the national lockdown that the Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte enacted here was due to end. But of course, um, that isn't the case. We've seen over the last couple of weeks, the, the numbers have gotten a lot worse in terms of those infected and and the people dying. So um, we, we got our latest announcement last night that uh, we expect these conditions uh, to, to tighten and to continue for another two weeks. And I would imagine that will continue again. The good thing is, just to bring people up to speed, is that we are beginning to see some some good things come out of the numbers. Uh, even though we passed 13,000 dead and over 100,000, 110,000, in fact, infected, the, the curve does seem to be flattening. So whatever the government has done and how it got there uh, is another discussion. But at the moment, there is a bit more hope. If I come to you next, uh, Lamprini, because... Um... Just uh, looking, uh, given Sean was talking about the number of deaths there, I mean, Italy is is quite substantially ahead in, in that kind of rather ghoulish uh, table of deaths. And, and France and the UK come, you know, quite a way behind, I think about 4, 000, over 4,000 deaths in France now, 3,500 approaching in the UK. But Greece uh, thus far seems to have escaped uh, the worst of it in terms of deaths. But uh, how are things? Uh, well, you? if... if, if if the numbers are true, if the numbers are true, because they seem too low to us to. Uh, we have 51 dead, uh, uh, 1,400 in hospitals in Greece, and uh, about, no, 1,400 that are affected, and about 90 in emergency units. But those numbers in a country that tests don't happen, and that most people are advised to stay at home, can be false. And this is something that we cannot check as journalists. It's one of the main problems right now. Uh, we're in a third week of lockdown. In, we're getting into the third week of lockdown in Greece. I'm right now in Salonika, second biggest city. And measures are almost the same like in France, but we're allowed to go out to walk for health reasons, like jogging or you know, have a walk for elder people. That's the only difference. Although the measures are going to be... Um, we don't know the date exactly of when they will decide to change everything and allow us to go out. Uh, the Church of Greece announced that it moves Easter from the end of April to the end of May. So I I would assume that they talked with the government and that we will stay in until mid-May, possibly. Okay. My, you might have thought it needed more than the government to, <laughs> to move Easter. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, they moved. I think it's the only time in the history of the Orthodox Christian Church that they moved Easter for a month, which is like, you know, and they probably have talked with the government about it. Uh, we're in a state of emergency. We're in lockdown. There's huge problems for a lot of people because the country is really in a bad condition. We're coming out of a, we're not coming out. We're still in crisis, financial crisis. We're still with a almost destroyed health system. The infrastructure is, is destroyed. Um, I, we were counting that there were 63 in the last 10 years. There were 63 uh, directives from the from Brussels that were telling us to cut down on health uh, infrastructure, and now we're paying for it. Okay. Doctors are working 12 and 14 hours. It's so that's why I'm not sure that the numbers that you see are the numbers that are true. Yes, I think there's a lot of uh, uh, discussion about the numbers and how. 
how deaths are counted and uh, ascribed to particular reasons and all, all, all sorts of um, uh, uh, you know, decisions to be taken on those fronts. But Fraser, if I can just come to you, because I, th- I, th- I think I'm right in saying that Greece uh, locked down on the same day as, as the UK. Um, so you're, you're, what, on your 10th day of lockdown now? So how, how's it going with you? Yeah, it's, it, it's week two, and it's been really interesting to see that I think there has been finally a bit of pushback against um, against the lockdown. It's not as strict as um, in France, but it was it was really it was really strange um, last week and, and the weeks leading up to the lockdown how the press in unison called for stricter measures for things to be shut down. And now, really, not very long into it, they're wondering how we're going to get out of this mess. And I think the controversy this week has been around the, the lack of um, testing for um, you know COVID nineteen. And, and that's really important because testing will be key to the exit strategy. The government is supposedly reviewing um, the lockdown in you know, about a week and a half's time, but it seems very unlikely that it's going to be lifted then. Um, and it's only when you know, we have an adequate sense of how many people in the population have already had the disease, how many people have developed immunity, that we can even think about you know, a, a return to normal. And um, only just last week, ministers were talking about a matter of days before antibody tests would be um, made available to the public that you'd be able to buy on Amazon, that you'd be able to buy in Boots. And now that is uh, mysteriously not talked about anymore. And um, the targets for testing are being you know, failed on a daily basis. And the UK has slid right down the league tables in those terms, going from one of the highest testing countries, I think, last week or the week before, around fifth in the world. Now it's somewhere like 36. Have you subscribed to the Academy of Ideas newsletter yet? It's the best way to stay up to date with the work we're continuing to do during these strange times. Hear from our director, Claire Fox, stay informed about what events we're planning for the autumn in 2021, and most crucially, keep up to speed with the numerous Zoom book clubs, salon meetings, and lectures we plan to release in the coming weeks and months. Follow the link at the bottom of this podcast to sign up. So it uh, seems a good uh, moment to talk a little bit more generally about the way that uh, various different governments have, have, have responded to this crisis. And Sean, I, I think probably um, we're best coming to you to start with because uh, the, it, it certainly in European terms, Italy was where the, the virus hit first. And, and you're now uh, well over a month into uh, uh, an incredibly serious situation. So um, just in terms of how the government reaction has been in Italy, I mean, what's what's your sense of how, how the, the government has handled this? Well, I don't want to be too unfair on the government. This is unprecedented. A lot of people are, are still dying and the rest of us for the most part, are locked indoors. So what I will say on the positive side is that uh, the Prime Minister, Giuseppe Conte, so far is coming out of this quite well because he's been a very calming presence uh, on our TV screens a couple of times. He's had to address the nation, you know, not a bead of sweat in his face when he's been given these, you know, incredibly historical speeches in the sense of what he's had to enact uh, in terms of restrictions on people's freedom. Um, And he is known as the lawyer of the people and that kind of comes across and there's a good side to that and there's a not so good side but there has been a series of misfortunate events uh, or unfortunate events I should say missteps because okay we have to judge our preparedness from the information that we got from China um, and there are questions about 
whether or not the government there was entirely truthful with its figures. But we were sort of end of end of end of February, I think, when we first got our, our couple of cases. And uh, there's, there was an instant dispute between the government in Rome and the regional governments over how to handle this, who to test, how many people to test, who should be allowed to travel, who shouldn't. There's just been this lack of any kind of clear strategy. And even with the lockdown, OK, we were the first in Europe uh, to, to initiate this kind of lockdown and, and these severe restrictions on movement of people. Uh, but even that was kind of ham-fisted. I mean, it was announced in the north of Italy. Um, it was actually leaked, in fact, to, to the press. Uh, and what happened was everyone who heard that Milan, for example, was going to be locked down, they just they, they, they just went south. The people who belong to the south of the country just went south. And obviously, we've gone a lot further since then. So the schools are shut. Um, and basically, day-to-day -day life here now, I don't leave the house unless I'm doing my once-a-week shop. And you have to have a, a particular reason to leave the house. And in fact, yesterday, they brought in more restrictions, such as you can't help a loved one um, who's in particular need or an elderly relative unless you have medical evidence from a doctor so things are tightening even further and I think at this stage people are perfectly were perfectly willing in the vast majority of cases to go along with this because this was a country at war so they said and we saw that from the pictures in the, in the hospital rooms um, but at this stage people are, are starting to worry how far this will go and also when will it end? Okay, I, th I think you raised a, an interesting point uh, about the popularity of of some of the leading political figures in 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 uh, response to this crisis, because it's also been noted here uh, in the UK that Boris Johnson has uh, uh, gained quite a lot of support for his, uh, his his response to it in in America, even with the seeming chaos uh, of the at least the early part of the Trump response. Even his popularity seems to be holding up if not going higher um, and Elizabeth Macron um, has been something of a hate figure for many people in France over the over the last year or so with the Gilets Jaunes uh, protests or whatever but how, how um, what's your impression of, of, of well their response but also the people's uh, take on that response? Well Macron is very polarizing anyway as you said and he's been hated by swathes of uh, public opinion and he's a bit the Marmite president, but he was starting from very low figures. But there's a study by international pollsters, it's not Cantor, it's Ipsos, uh, who gave the curves of appreciation by public opinion in various countries. And the Mexican president, President Obrador, was on top and Macron was on bottom. And uh, in between, you had various characters with Trump more or less in the middle. And Boris Johnson going sharply up after starting from fairly down in France. Um, the thing about Macron is now I think people, first of all, people would like, you know, the government's effort to succeed and they've started being more acceptable. But right at the beginning, first of all, there was denial. It went almost through all the stages of grief. And the beginning was it's in China. It's not here. It's the Italians. They're not well organized. And then it came to France. And then it's you do not need to wear a mask if you're not ill. You do not need to. Uh, a number of things which essentially the government spokesman who's incredibly spokeswoman who's incredibly unpopular Sibet Ndiaye uh, kept on saying things that she had to say well that is not exactly actually what we she had to uh, sort of uh, keep on she kept on talking she said the opposite and she never said we apologize for this so that did not help for the popularity of the government uh, the idea that for the government um, um, the the first uh, you know a number of things were said uh, 
to because they felt that you could not public opinion could not handle uh, the reality and public opinion nowadays realizes that Macron's first speech, which was a sp short speech uh, during you know a few you know, ten minutes. The, the, uh, about three weeks ago was good. The second one in which he repeated six or seven times, we are at war, was dramatic and, and stage-like and not appreciated. The prime minister, uh, Edouard Philippe, is doing slightly better because he's much more matter of fact. And we changed health ministers and the new health minister is also, he's a, a hospital doctor and he is more uh, respected and by and large there's a feeling that they're trying what they do, but there are questions. The questions is why did France, and that's not Macron's fault, get rid of the uh, strategic stocks of masks that we had until uh, 2013. Why do we not have hydroalcoholic gel? Why do we not have uh, um, uh, tests? Why were we unable to follow the Korean example? A number of things. We, di we didn't go through the stage in which Boris Johnson decided, first of all, that herd immunity would mean that you know, get people uh, get uh, Brazilian people ill, and that way people will be immune. We never went through that, but there's there has been there was fumbling at the beginning, and now it's lockdown. They were told the first lockdown was supposed to be two weeks, and I knew you know and spoke to people in government, and they said you know it's really going to be six weeks, and I said why don't you say it? And they said uh, people can't take it; they have to realize what a crisis it is. And the problem is that cosseting public opinion is not necessarily evil. But when it shows, uh, then you get lots of conspiracy theories. And I get those terrifying emails by uh, educated people who tell you that, you know, it's all planned. It's Macron with Big Pharma. I mean, it's, it's terrifying. And I'm at this stage, I'm more afraid of the uh, wave of conspiracy theories than I'm afraid of the virus. OK, thanks. That's, that's very useful. If, uh, Lamprini, if I can come to you, because it, it may be the case that... Uh, the, the impact of the virus has been uh, relatively low so far and, and therefore that uh, the, the government might not perhaps have been under so much pressure uh, as some other governments. No, they're not. But um, certainly the, the, the situation just now where there was the first death within migrant camps outside uh, Athens yesterday uh, raises a particular form of, of problem within Greece. I wonder how, how that's shaping up and, and, and are there plans to be able to combat that? The, the camps are in an awful condition. We already had them have them closed, most of them. They're on lockdown. We had the first death and... Uh, the camp where the death came from is uh, now having 20 people sick. That's the number they gave today, that we have 20 sick there from the coronavirus. And we have mostly the problem of the huge camps like Moria in Lesbos, in Mytilini, where they're made like for five or 6,000 people and there are 20,000 people there right now. They do not have any way to protect themselves. A lot of the people who work for the NGOs have left because the governments asked them to leave. And uh, like, I think it's six weeks, more or less, they left for six weeks for, at the first stage, and we don't know how long they will be out of the country. So those people there are all alone. They do not have any, I think in, in Moria, there's uh, one bathroom for 1,400 or something like that for every 1400 people, which is like, we're talking about washing your hands, you know, where, how, and one third of them are kids. 
So you have a huge problem there, but it's the same in all the camps. This is the biggest camp and with the most problems, but it's the same in all the camps. And with the people of the NGOs out of the country, a lot of them, the problems are getting worse. But uh, the problem also is that the Greek public seems to forget those people right now. The government uh, tries to protect the Greek population. The migrants and the refugees are out of the picture, more or less. Yeah. There's, of course, some, some people from the left fighting to bring them in the picture. But it's the same not only for them, but all the people that live in the, in the edges of society, let's say. That's and, a big problem right now. And I did read that um, some of the, the people that are uh, com still coming into the country now are being put straight in detention centres. Is, is, is that Yes, correct? yes, that's true. That's true. And we have no tests for them. We don't have tests for the general population. To be, I mean, the tests are very few. When you call the doctor and say that you're, you're having a fever or something, they will say, say, stay at home. And if you ask for a test, they will say, no, you're not going to the hospital. You have to bring someone home and pay for the test, which is about 120 euros, the cheapest one. So most of the people do not do that. We don't have the real numbers. And in the camps, they don't do tests at all. And of course, the people cannot pay for tests there. Fraser, if I can come to you, because just talking about the way that the state has, has, has responded in the various different countries, I mean, obviously, in the UK, um, lockdown, as, as everywhere else, uh, has to be backed up with uh, powers to enforce that lockdown, because having new laws uh, means nothing unless uh, the, the government uh, and, and the authorities find ways to enforce them. So what's, um, what's been your take on, on the way that uh, the UK UK has responded um, to the need uh, for these 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 lockdowns. Well, it was it was interesting that I think for a very long time the UK government had taken a more kind of voluntaristic approach. You know, advising social distancing measures, telling people to wash their hands. I mean, this was this was ridiculed for a very long time, and you know, talked about as a kind of outlier. But I think um, in a way that was probably necessary in order to get people to support the lockdown that is now in place because you know there are only so many police officers they can't be around 24 7 to tell you off to send you home so even even the strict kind of state lockdown needs um public support and public consent and the public opinion seems to show that around 95 percent of people are currently in favor of it I i'm sure that will deteriorate um as time goes on as more people lose their jobs as uh, you know the kind of social um consequences of being locked up inside kind of take their toll but at the moment there is healthy support for it and I think that that's completely necessary to the, the policy being effective but there has also been a great deal of confusion about um, what people are and aren't allowed to do um, and there have been some really kind of striking examples of overzealous policing of um, you know police taking drone footage of people walking their dogs in um in the peak districts um you know these people in the middle of nowhere not causing any harm to anyone um other police um putting dye in a in a beautiful lake in order to turn it black and to put people off gathering there uh people have been uh, arrested i've seen, you know, heard stories about care workers um being arrested in their cars because they're traveling together um police have gone to corner shops and told them that they're not allowed to sell Easter eggs because these items are non-essential. And a lot of this stuff is not backed up by any of the emergency laws that are put in place. These are just, um, the police have interpreted the um, advice or the kind of warnings given by ministers 
as law. So it was interesting to see Lord Sumption, former Supreme Court judge, come out and say this week that this was, um, you know, the beginnings of a police state, effectively, that um, police are not necessarily following the law, but following the direct orders of, of ministers. And that, you know, that has to be slightly worried that that's going to continue in the long term. OK, and, and Anne Elizabeth, just to, to, to come to you next, because um, just talking in terms of the state, I mean, France is is um, uh, renowned as, as kind of perhaps one of the countries in Europe where the straight the state takes a, a, a stronger role. And um, the th- one of the things that struck me um, in the in the last few weeks is the way that Macron uh, seems more comfortable um, asserting uh, his authority in this situation than he has been perhaps over the past year when he's been wobbling in front of the the protests of the Gilets Jaunes. But there seems to be a particular dynamic within the French state um, and possibly other states as well, where the introduction of laws such as these then leads to almost a competitive process of, of enforcement and upping the ante, as it were, in terms of new rules and new organised, new sta- new uh, parts of the state authority trying to take control over it. So kind of h- how has it been working? Well, in terms of politics, you have contradictions because on the one hand, Macron is still divisive. And at the same time, at the same time, in the same polls, people say that they will, you know, they, they trust that the government is trying their best, which uh, is sort of more or less accepted. Uh, there has been um, a question of whether, for instance, uh, we would adopt the, the tracking method, which as far as I know is used in Korea, in Singapore and in Israel, in which your telephone data uh, uh, follows you so that people know exactly individually, granularly, uh, who has uh, the virus so that they can track who they've met and, and, and essentially predict the clusters of illness before they declare themselves, which uh, certainly was one of the essential things that helped Korea contain uh, the uh, outbreak in, in, in the north uh, Western region of Korea, um, Korea, when there was an evangelical rally and uh, the result was a cluster of people getting ill and they were all contacted personally. Now you compare this with the region of Alsace where there was another rally of evangelicals uh, and uh, Alsace is now, was the first hit region in France and the one with the most dead to this day. And um, the reaction to this is, can we adopt that? And we have the defender of the rights, which is a function of a kind of sort of human rights and and the constitutional ombudsman Jacques Tubor, former cabinet minister, and he you know he says uh, that there have to be very specific legal conditions for this to be uh, applied, and the way it looks is that Macron will make it voluntary. Do you want to be tracked? Will you allow your data from your telephone uh, uh, to be used for this tracking? Um, so it's better than nothing, uh, but it's not as much as you'd expect from from the French. But more generally, the default position, the factory setting, if you like, of the French is a very heavy state organizing, regulating the country. And from the 1980s, strangely enough, under a president, uh, Mitterrand, who was a socialist, but because it was the era of Reagan and Thatcher, uh, the French said, no, we've got to become more liberal, we've got to have more competition, we've got to have changes. But that's not what the psyche of the French likes. What the French really like is a system which was at its best in the 30 post-war years in France, in which we were reconstructing the country with a cadre of selfless civil servants who were very competent, and and the government sort of uh, 
uh, benignly sort of uh, the, the watching this. And uh, much of the Gilets jaunes revolt, it's been difficult to explain in other places, was of people who wanted this back. They said, no, we want the state to give us all sorts of things, good civil, good services, you know, health service, which we now see has been exhausted in the last years because of budget cuts and, and rationalization that was businesslike and not medical. Uh, but also the fact that we do not have as many good trains as we used to because it's too, it's too expensive. The Gilets jaunes thing started because um, of, of a, a fuel tax and a, a speed limitation, two things that made it very difficult for people to hold jobs because the trains, the small branch lines have all disappeared. The French state, which is still spending um, 57% uh, of GDP on, on state stuff. So essentially, we are the most, you know, the country in all of Western Europe and possibly in the world that spent the most of its GDP on, on something that's decided by the state, still cannot afford the quality of service that we, we took for granted in the, in the 30 years between 1945 and 19, essentially 1974 with the first oil crunch. And it will not happen again, but it's very difficult to tell people, no, you won't have free medicine, or it's going to be more difficult, or you'll have waiting lists. Uh, no, you can't have trains going everywhere. We have TGVs, but we have fewer branch uh, lines. Uh, uh, the upkeep of social services is not so good. And that's, you know, that's poor, the, what we have is a one in a century crisis. But that kind of thing is, is sort of showing what the French model is no longer doing very well. And if you've got the state coming in and saying, well, we decide it's very reassuring for the French. Hello, Claire Fox here, Director of the Academy of Ideas. If you're stuck at home with more time on your hands, why not explore the Battle of Ideas Festival archive? On our SoundCloud, we have years worth of political, cultural and scientific debates on everything from climate change to Rembrandt, and they're all for free. Take a tour through years of the Battle of Ideas Festival by clicking on our podcast of ideas SoundCloud. I did want to touch first of all on on the kind of European and European Union stuff, and secondly on just the kind of some of the stuff that you were getting onto at the end there, Anne Elizabeth, about uh, 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 the the kind of public response. So if we do a little bit on the European Union first, and then I'll I'll do a little bit on the public, and then I think that we can sort of leave it at that. So let me come to Fraser first on the the European Union um, response because I I know you've been writing about. Uh, this over the past week or so, Fraser, and it has been um, astonishing uh, to look at the the reaction within the European Union over over the over the past uh, month or so. Um, you know, blatantly being unable to come to any sort of economic uh, aid with, uh, particularly with the, the the Italians and some aspects of 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 the the European authorities um, failing to provide sort of basic medical support as as well. So, would you kind of give us a sense of how you think that the European Union is doing throughout this crisis? Well, I think um, you know at the start it was kind of absent, noticeable by its absence, and countries were taking matters into their own hands and often, you know, pushing aside kind of long established uh, EU norms. So it was interesting that the, the Schengen area, the, you know, the EU's free movement passportless zone had its uh, 25th anniversary uh, recently, but it happened at a time when I think um, 14 EU countries had reimposed their national borders and things like the single market were um, a little bit in, in disarray because suddenly you had countries like Germany, um, 
placing export bans on on medical masks, although those have since been lifted. Um, in terms of the economy, the EU has had to say that we um, countries don't need to abide by the kind of strict budget rules. That, and uh, and similarly with state aid, those those rules have been um, suspended um, until December. And and these things are, um, you know, there have been major battles over over these kinds of rules. They've um, defined um, the response to the euro crisis in some ways. You know, the kind of um, austerity being one of the one of the major things where states were told they can't. Um, spend their way out of recession they have to cut their way out and that that's you know obviously caused major tensions in the past and and to see those things kind of pushed aside um has been really fascinating there's also the i mean there's also been a lot of gaffes so um christine lagarde very early on when um italy was uh suffering very greatly was was quick to say that it wasn't her job to um to manage the spread the spread being the spread being the kind of difference in um, borrowing costs uh, for between Italy and you know Germany, the kind of baseline, and that sent the market into disarray and had to be corrected by a big announcement of uh, quantitative easing. Um, head of the European Commission, um, Ursula von der Leyen, um, has seemed to dismiss um, this idea coming from Italy of having Corona bonds, a kind of collective uh, debt instrument. You know, that it kind of got nowhere in their first summit, but um, von der Leyen dismissed it. Uh, in um, you know in the press in a way that I don't think she expected to be jumped upon and again now that has kind of had to be you know people have had to scramble to kind of correct that and you know fissures have been emerging between what have been called the frugal four um, with kind of the Netherlands and Germany at the helm um, the kind of northern prosperous countries and the southern um, kind of more indebted countries who also happen to be suffering a great deal from the virus so um, it's kind of a messy picture at the moment. Um, Sean, if I, I can just come to you on that point, because the, the reaction within Italy has been particularly notable, I think, to some of the, the European Union's response with, with uh, quite a lot of assertions that really, uh, once this crisis is over, then perhaps there's some scores to be settled even, is, is the sort of language that we're, we're, headed, we're, we're talking in just now. Um, what, how's, how, how's that been? I think there's been a major shift. Uh, I think, as you mentioned there, you can probably see that even from the outside. It'll take some time just to see how that will affect things in the long term. But I think anyone can can reasonably say that one of the obvious benefits of having a federalized Europe is the fact that you can pool resources. Uh, and just like we see in the United States, particularly in moments of crisis, those resources in a federalized uh, way can be pumped to where they need them and pumped quickly and effectively. And what we've seen during this uh, coronavirus crisis has been entirely the opposite. I mean, it was clear from very early on, um, whenever this started to really take off in, in Lombardy and Veneto, that the Italians were struggling to deal with this and that they needed help. Uh, and instead, what we got was a wall of silence, followed on by those uh, very, uh, very strange moments where, uh, as we mentioned, Germany were, were blocking certain medical supplies and there, were, there was confusion about what was going to arrive in and what wasn't. And even today, um, Fredro was mentioning Ursula von der Leyen there, the, uh, the president of the European Commission. The newspapers in, in, in Italy today are talking about an apology from the European Commission from her saying, Italy, we are with you. Uh, and here's 100 billion euros that you can access. And that this is a crisis test for Europe. And that although we haven't made all the right decisions, we're here for you um, and we'll emerge stronger. I think she's entirely wrong about that. I think, number one, she didn't apologise. And number two, the idea that the EU will 
come out of the stronger in the minds of Italians is, is just fanciful. There is such anger uh, at, at, at the treatment. And, and this is something that, okay, the corona bonds was appalling enough because that's a, a fairly straightforward procedure from the European Central Bank, from the European Union's point of view that they could have enacted. But you're seeing for the very first time in a long time, a kind of yeah. unity across the, 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 the political divide in Rome. We are seeing MPs and political parties that would have had nothing to do with each other uh, come together. And I, I don't need, you know, I don't need a history degree to tell you how, how rare that is. They're coming together on the broad strokes of the lockdown and in criticism of the EU. And that's very significant. So this, this idea of even being able to criticize the EU is no longer an argument of the populists. Lamprini, just to come to you, I mean, obviously Greece, um, in terms of treatment from the European Union, has been uh, <laughs> yes. on the receiving end for quite a number of years. Um, We're I, the I, champions. We're the champions. Um, you are the champions, yes. Um, I, th I think one of the things that certainly we've noted um, from the UK is the way that there's been a, a kind of spirit of resistance a lot of the time. Um, to in, in Greece to what has been going on in terms of their treatment. Not all the time, but quite a lot of the time. And I wonder, is, is that kind of spirit of resistance uh, and spirit of um, uh, uh, determination to overcome that, is, is that still evident with you just now? We were the more Eurosceptic country the last few years, and obvious, the reasons are obvious. And it's getting uh, bigger, the, the, the wave of Euroscepticism is getting bigger, bigger right now. Um, there's a, a lot of solidarity, uh, feeling of solidarity with the other countries of the South, of the European South. And we always felt that we belong, you know, in the second wave of European countries, not the important ones, the less important ones. So what happens in Italy is very important to the Greeks like that right now. And you see the reactions everywhere. I mean, in social media, uh, EU is... Uh, something that we discussed just for fun. Nobody takes it seriously anymore. And there was a nice phrase, I think, from one of the of our not a centrist journalists, I should say, which was that like de facto the EU doesn't exist anymore. And I think it's the right thing to say. And that's the feeling we all have here. Uh, the government is for EU, of course, and they're trying to do their best, but people the reaction of the people is is getting worse and worse or bet, better and better in my in my opinion if it happens in other countries but we have propaganda from the government here uh we had one of our ministers say yesterday the fake news that are in television and they allow uh people to get more strict with the measures to, to do do better with measures are allowed are good and we also have the government giving 21 million to the biggest channels and radio stations for the fight against coronavirus. Okay. So we're having now something that reminds us of Hungary a little bit, and we're very worried about it in Greece. That's uh, very interesting. And uh, Anne Elizabeth and, and then Fraser, maybe just come to you for a couple of final quick comments. I mean, um, uh, what, how, how are you seeing the next sort of, Cut week, two weeks. Is 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 there signs that uh, things can start to plateau out a little bit and perhaps improve, or how do you see it? From what I've been discussing with with uh, actually the uh, the professor who's in charge of the COVID response 
uh, 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 task force appointed by the health ministry, who himself is head of cardiology in a major Paris teaching hospital. Uh, and uh, his department has been entirely changed into an emergency reaction, an ICU unit for coronavirus patients. That's how bad it is. Uh, and um, they only do emergency surgery. The rest is all, all the beds are given to, to uh, um, uh, ICU uh, for, for coronavirus. What he says is, is going to get worse for at least another week. And then with a bit of luck, it will plateau and come down. And what he says, and uh, you know, coming from him, and I've known him a very long time, he's a childhood friend, um, is uh, stay home. And, they are scared, they are working to the maximum of their ability, they are doing quite remarkable things because the French are difficult and undisciplined and everything, but they have the d'Artagnan spirit and when you've got to be heroic, you go for it. It's, it's a French thing. But uh, they worry about those people. So there's the, uh, uh, the uh, binary thing is, should we worry about the economy? And certainly we ought to worry about the economy because a kind of lockdown that's going to be more or less two months uh, um, and, and the markets falling down, which the left is very happy about, but doesn't realize that that's what enable people to hire. Uh, means that we are facing an extremely difficult summer uh, and autumn, uh, even assuming that we've more or less beat the virus. So uh, you're not talking, I mean, the French are never optimistic, but you're not talking to an optimistic country right now. Okay, thanks. And um, Fraser, if I can just uh, conclude with you, I mean, we've got uh, tonight, the second week in a row, the, the kind of clapping for the health workers and public sector workers. And um, I mean, it's been, been noticeable and heartening, I think, that uh, so many people have responded uh, to the call for volunteers and, and so on and so forth. But even out with the kind of big, um, the big initiatives, there's been, I, I, I think, uh, quite a heartening level of just individuals uh, gathering together in their own communities out with any sort of official organisation. I mean, is there anything there that sort of gives you heart in terms of uh, how we're going to go forward over the next uh, few weeks? Uh, yes, definitely. The um, Certainly the, the numbers of people signing up to, you know, volunteer their time has been extraordinary. You know, there was, I think, after the government asked for people to volunteer for the NHS, I think it was about 500,000 people volunteered in a day. You can't help but feel heartened by that. Um, you can't help but feel inspired by the doctors and nurses on the front line, um, often doing this in, in very dangerous conditions without the equipment that they need, you know, putting themselves in, in harm's way. Um, so yes, and, and I, th I think, you know, in some ways the lockdown um, and the situation as a whole has shown the best and worst of society. Um, the worst being um, the people snitching on each other, uh, phoning the police when they see someone go for a second jog, or buying an Easter egg or whatever it may be. And the best being the kind of community spirit and the, um, you know, the, the solidarity that it, it has created and people noticing um, the, their neighbors and thinking about the old woman who lives across the street and how they can help them and thinking about volunteering at their food bank and, and whatever it is. So I, I hope that, um, you know, when this is over and it, and it will be over, that it, it really does you know, bring people together for the long term. I'm more pessimistic about, um, how the economy will fare because I think that once you know a lot of the time once kind of companies go under and a lot of companies will be going under we we've just seen 900,000 people in a single week um, apply for um, universal credit um, which is you know extraordinary 
they're not going to come back very easily. So, um, you know, I'm hopeful that we can get out of this lockdown as soon as possible, maybe in May or June. But um, the crisis is going to linger on for a very long time and the effects of it are, are not going anywhere anytime soon. I hope you enjoyed that glimpse into how countries in Europe are responding to the coronavirus crisis. We'll be back in future weeks with further international perspectives. If you want to find out more about what Academy of Ideas are up to during this lockdown, then check out our website at academyofideas.org.uk. There you'll find out information about a number of events, book clubs and salons that are now moving to online forums.